Am I on? Ooh, and loud. All right. So the next topic the church is going to go over uh, in the teaching time is the book of Nehemiah. It's my job today to introduce that topic and to give a historical setting into which we find the inhabitants of Nehemiah. Uh, So that's what we're going to uh, do today. But what I also want to do is tell you that God is big, and his plans are from everlasting to everlasting, and he makes them happen. Uh, So I want to tell you the big story of God today and also show you where Nehemiah fits into that. So first, we'll say who are the people in Nehemiah's day. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you today, uh, you PDF cell phone people uh, don't get this benefit, but uh, if you stick your thumb in Genesis chapters 12 and then your finger in uh, Acts 2, in between uh, these pages, God deals only with his chosen nation, Israel. Uh, That's four-fifths of your Bible. Other nations, a.k.a. Gentile or non-Jewish nations, uh, are mentioned, but only in relation to Israel and mostly as their enemies. And so then they're the enemies of God. Uh, The people in the story of Nehemiah are the Hebrew nation. They are from Judah, so they're called the Jews. They're also uh, called the Israelites. The setting of the story is mostly Jerusalem. We read about how they acquired their capital city in the series on the life of David, and we left Uh, David uh, with the nation that was huge and safe and blessed and full of peace. And he was handing it off to his son who was going to do more of the same and actually make it bigger and more blessed and more peace. When God created the nation, way back at the very beginning, he said, I have chosen you to be my people, my prized possession above all others on the face of the earth. And that's to show it's exclusive. I mean, from everybody else, he chose one nation They were God's special people. And God even says to them, I love you. Uh, Chronologically, Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament. So it stands to reason there's a lot that comes before uh, from the beginning of the nation till the end of the Old Testament. Uh, I want to read you a line from Nehemiah that describes the state of the nation during Nehemiah's time. They started as the prized possession of God. And then in Nehemiah's day, we read this. Today, we are slaves in the very land you gave to our ancestors to eat its fruit and to enjoy its good things. We are slaves, exclamation point. Uh, Its abundant produce goes to the kings you set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they see fit, and we are in great distress. Nehemiah's book is about an identity crisis. And it's about restoration. God crushed the nation uh, as punishment for their disobedience. The people say the reason they're slaves is well understood to them. It's because of our sins. I certainly think their feeling of great distress makes a lot of sense. They fell from prized possession to slaves uh, to the enemies of God. That's quite a change of identity. In Nehemiah's day, they'd been slaves for almost 150 years. The walls of the great Jerusalem of old, decimated, rubble. The gates of the city, burned. God had stirred the mind of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to attack Jerusalem, kill many of the people, destroy the temple that was so special. Though Babylon did it, the people knew it was really God punishing them. Nebuchadnezzar attacked in the form of a siege, and it lasted about two years. 
the army of Babylon camped outside the capital city of Jerusalem so nobody could go in and out and they just waited for the people to starve or give up. And those who didn't starve during the siege were either slaughtered when they ran or captured and hauled off to Babylon. When we start Nehemiah 150 years later, God's people have been scattered across the known world or assimilated into the other people groups of Babylonian and Persian empires. Though they had once been this wonderful world power enjoying God's great blessing under David and Solomon, there were now less than 50,000 of them when we do a count towards the end of Nehemiah, surviving after the exile. Those few who remain, remain, are called the remnant of the people of God. So let's read the opening lines of Nehemiah here. Nehemiah's brother comes to visit Nehemiah from the capital city of Persia. It's called Susa. It's about a hundred rough road miles, uh, not by car, of course, uh, to get there. And Nehemiah asks his brother about the state of the people. And his brother tells him, Nehemiah had never been there. Uh, Those who are left, the remnant, who survived the exile, they're in great trouble and shame, reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates burned with fire. Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard this, I sat down and I wept for days. And then for four more months, he prays and he fasts. And he asks God to provide a way for him to leave his job and to return to the exiled people and to help them. We read that God miraculously answers Nehemiah and that he does and he gets to leave Susa and go to help his hurting countrymen. And that's what the book's about, how he helps. Uh, Nehemiah is a book about restoration and identity crisis. I mean, you can imagine falling from the prized possession to the slaves. You can certainly see uh, why people might have an identity crisis. For the next six weeks, we'll discuss how Nehemiah actually helped the nation get partially restored by building them up in a number of ways. He helps them take away some of their great trouble and shame and protects them from enemies and he helps them feel and act like the people of God again. How does he do this? Here's a broad overview of the book. They actually build a wall around the destroyed capital city. Uh, With Nehemiah's help, they're built up spiritually and understand who they are as God's people again. Through all the events of the book, they actually build a real sense of unity. Uh, And the crowning feature of this unity is when they write and they sign this document that says, I'm committing my life back to God as a person and as a nation. As they hear God's word and they begin to obey it, they actually see themselves as God's people again. And in the best chapters of the book, the people write a long and a thankful history of how God has always been with the nation even though they've fallen to such terrible depths. God had never left them. At the end of the book, they're still slaves and exiles, just like they were at the beginning. They've made a lot of very practical steps, though, in the right direction towards pleasing God and obeying Him again. But the last chapter shows them backsliding and falling falling back, failing to obey God. We leave the Old Testament with a clear picture of a people who are in need of a Savior. They're still slaves to a world power, and they really do need the Savior that comes from the Gospel. So what are we going to learn from Nehemiah? As an application, we're not Jewish, we're not under the law, and we're not slaves to Persia. Uh, 
But we are God's people, and we're his special people, and we've been chosen in Christ to be a different kind of special people than the Jews. We're the church. Though we were once Gentiles and enemies of the people of God, First Peter 2, uh, 9-11, it just blows my mind. It's been awesome to study it. It says this about the church. We are ourselves a holy nation, a chosen race, a people of God's own. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Uh, once we were shown no mercy, but now we're shown mercy. It says we're to be foreigners and exiles ourselves, and that we are in a battle against the soul. It says we're to try hard and to have a good testimony in front of non-Christians. Ephesians says we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, I think it's Ephesians, to accomplish this task of being a witness. Yet, as a spiritual nation ourselves, with spiritual blessings, where do we find ourselves as God's people? We remain here in the presence of a world power, the prince of the power of the air, who is our enemy of God and of us. We have a war that's going on. Keith always says that, and it's spiritual. Do we suffer sometimes from identity crisis too? Are we even slaves to the world system that's around us? God says, though we're in the world, we're not to behave as those of the world. We're to have a testimony. Nehemiah helped the people discover who they were again as God's people, and he pushed them to behave as God's people. And in the end, they recommit their lives to God with a real sense of joy. Here's another application. Maybe you have a life that has shame and trouble in it because you've committed sins in the past and rebuilding a testimony is actually really hard work, especially when it's in front of people who used to know how great you were. Uh, Nehemiah teaches us the benefit of building practical spiritual defenses that keep us from the enemy's attack and inside the walls of the will of God. What I mean to say is, I mean, in Nehemiah they build a literal wall, but our application would be we have to build a spiritual wall, you know, brick by brick. If you struggle with your Christian testimony, say, in sexual sin, you should get yourself maybe a filter on your computer or you should do something else that's practical, like get an accountability partner or something like that. It's a brick in the wall. Practical steps that you can make towards protecting yourself. If it's anger, memorize passages of Scripture and count to ten. I mean, just simple things are bricks in the wall that help you be more moral in front of people and then you will have a better testimony. So a couple more concepts. Can we expect opposition in our spiritual life? As the group began the work, as they continue the work, they face opposition. At first, the enemies didn't really take them that seriously. They just made fun of them. Uh, and then they threatened them. And then they wrote a letter back to Nehemiah's boss and said, hey, he's doing this thing. And then they even try to kill him in the end. Anything they could do to get him off the wall and away from the work. Is the Christian promise spiritual opposition in life? You bet we are. Can we hurt each other as fellow Christians as we try to grow in the Christian life? That's another application. There were behaviors within the group of the people of Nehemiah's day that affected the other people. Uh, they hurt each other and they slowed the work that was being done. They were addressed by the leadership of Nehemiah and then the people grew and they did the work and it got done. And the last thing, the result of all the hard work is that the story goes on and the people enjoy God again together and they actually understand what they read in his word and they try to do it and they obey it and they, and they know who they are and they have a genuine sense of joy. 
and they obey. And I mean, what could anybody want more for any church? And I really hope we have it for ours through the book of Nehemiah. So finally, it ends by saying that the work is never done. I mean, the remnant backslides. Nehemiah sets more reforms. And then he says, in the end, the last words of the book of Nehemiah say, God, at least remember me for good. You know, uh, it's clear that God did preserve Nehemiah and that he does remember him for good. And the Christian hopes similar. We have to try really hard in life. And sometimes it'll be hard. And sometimes the people that we want to influence, they won't come with us. But in the end, we want to hear that same kind of thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. So I think it's going to be a really great study. Uh, Let's open in prayer. And then we'll talk about the creation and the rise and the fall and the future of the people of God. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that there is truth in it for life and for godliness. And that I might be a boring speaker, I might be hard, but you are mine. And I am so glad. And I pray that the people would be able to hear your word, love it, do it, please you. Amen. All right. So now we're going to go through the creation of the nation and the purpose that God gave them as a nation. First, their creation, origins, ever important. They start with Abraham. The nation of Israel came from a man who they call their father or their patriarch, Abraham. God promised this man that he would make him a great nation, that God would bless that nation incredibly, that the number of people in the nation would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sands on the sea, and that uh, the people would have a special land that God would give them, and that Abraham, through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. This promise was unconditional, which means that only God promised it, and so it wasn't up to Abraham to do anything about it. Uh, to receive the blessings. They were as certain to happen as God was powerful enough to accomplish it and as much as he wasn't a liar. So does anyone know what happened in 1948 in May? Yeah, they became a nation again. They hadn't been their own nation for like 2,500 years. From the sack of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and their captivity until 1948. They couldn't call the land that God promised to them their own land. They were either slaves in it under Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, or they were exiled and scattered all over the world, dispersed everywhere, farthest reaches of the world. During the last 2,500 years, they've existed, but I don't think anyone would say that they were blessed. Uh, And even now that they are a nation in the land again, what do you read on the news all the time? They're not. They're hardly blessed. Uh, They're at war all the time. The state of the nation in Nehemiah's day is just following a time of excitement for them uh, where they're actually allowed to return home. But even though God partially restores them to the land, they're still under foreign oppression. They're still slaves. So what's it mean for the people in Nehemiah's day or even for the Jew today in the land? How do they look at that promise that was made to Abraham? The promise of the land and the blessings of the land isn't really happening in Nehemiah. Maybe you could say the promise of the land is happening now for the Jews, but certainly not the blessing. So in Nehemiah's day and today, how do they view that promise made to Abraham, that unconditional promise? Shouldn't it be happening because God promised it unconditionally? So what's the matter? Was God not powerful enough to make it happen? 
Well, he miraculously gave Abraham's wife a child at 100 years old. He miraculously delivered the entire nation from Egypt by all the plagues. Then he opened the Red Sea and he closed it on the nation of Egypt and killed their army. He drove out all the inhabitants of the land and gave them the previous members of the vineyards and their houses and their fruit trees and all those sorts of things. When enemies came like Goliath or Sennacherib, uh, God uses a little boy to kill a giant with his power and then an angel to kill 170,000 people that sieged the city. He didn't do that with Babylon, but he did it with Sennacherib. His power was available. He just didn't use it at certain times for his purposes. If God was powerful enough, why didn't he always keep them in the land with his power? The answer is because God introduces something new in the desert just before they enter the land. He gives them the law. The law says, I'm going to give you the land I promised your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but here are some warnings and some instructions for your behavior in the land as my prized possession. If you obey me, it's going to go well for you there. And you will have miraculous blessings, but if you disobey me, I'll make your life miserable, I'll remove you from the land, and I might even kill some of you. That kind of rubs you the wrong way. I hope to answer your confusion. How could God give Abraham an unconditional promise about the land and then right before the people enter the land, God throws in the book of Deuteronomy, which is entirely conditional. Uh, I want to drive home the point about how conditional the law was uh, before I give you the answer to the really cool mystery. Uh, so here it is, God speaking, Deuteronomy 30, uh, 15 to 30. God says, verse 11 first, this command I'm giving you, it's not difficult to understand. Look, I've set before you today life and prosperity on one hand, death and disaster on the other. What I'm commanding today is to love the Lord your God, to obey his commands, his statutes, his ordinances, walk in his ways. Then you'll live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you're about to possess. However, if you turn aside and don't obey, but are lured away to worship and serve other gods, I declare to you this very day that you will certainly perish. You will not extend your time in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. Today I invoke heaven and earth as a witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, obey, so that you and your descendants may live. I also call on you to love the Lord your God, to obey him, be loyal to him, for he gives you life and enables you to live continually in the land the Lord your God promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Sound pretty conditional? It is. It's absolutely conditional. And history has shown that man can only fail the law. Our answer to is God trustworthy is found in a long period of time. Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Romans, Revelations. It's a lot of people shown to live and die outside of the land and outside of the blessing. Uh, during the period of those books. It was a huge mystery to the people. One, they had trouble understanding. They enjoyed some parts of it, but not the full part of it. Uh, some found it a source of despair, an identity crisis. Forget it. I don't believe God. Or, you know, does God even love us anymore? Are we even his people anymore? They would think. You know, others, it was a source of hope. No, God's going to do this thing. God's going to bring us back to the land. And uh, obviously for both people, you know, both kinds of people, it was, it was incentive for everybody to obey. You know, they wanted the blessing. 
So God doesn't mince words later either when he says, yep, it was a mystery. Uh, And he praises the faith of the Old Testament people for having the faith to believe. Does it really matter that God gave the law and the land as a condition on top of the unconditional promise that he gave Abraham? What's the big deal? Can't God just change his mind? Uh, What's Israel going to do about it anyway? It's not like they can argue with God. Even if he were untrustworthy, he's really, really powerful. The problem is then that God would be a liar. And I think I can show you today that he did give the time of law and its conditions. uh, And he isn't a liar. I think I can show that God was looking past the time of the law all the way to the millennial kingdom when he promised Abraham the land and the blessing. Although God did bless the Israelite nation to a lesser degree at different times and give them the land to a lesser degree at different points in history, I think I can show that God promised Abraham the land apart from the law and way, way, way in the future when he said it. Uh, And I'll try to convince you of that now. Uh, So here's an example of where they were in the law and out of the law and the start of my my thing. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1 to 6. It shows them in the land and then out of it. When I have experienced all these things, when you have experienced, all these things, both the blessings and the curses that I've set before you, you'll reflect on them in the nation where I've banished you. Then, if you and your descendants turn to the Lord, your God, and obey him with your whole mind and being, just as I'm commanding you today, the Lord, your God, will reverse your captivity and have pity on you. He'll turn and gather you from all the peoples among whom he scattered you, even if you're exiles at the farthest reaches of the heavens. From there, the Lord, your God, will gather you and bring you back. Then he'll bring you to the land your ancestors possessed, and you will also possess it. He will do better for you. The Lord, your God, will also cleanse your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with your whole mind, being, so that you may live. Who cleanses the hearts in that passage? It says the Lord your God will cleanse your heart. After God does this, the scattered Israelite will be able to love God with their mind and being and live in the land that was promised Abraham. I think Ezekiel 36 sheds a little more light too. It helps to clarify how God will do this thing and when he'll do this heart thing. Uh, The time here is just before they're about to be removed from the land by Babylonian captivity and exile. And it says, in the future return to the land, when I gather you back, the Jews will have clean hearts because they'll be given new hearts. It's obvious from the context and the New Testament that these hearts are the same ones that you and I get when we have salvation and the acceptance of Jesus. It shows the Jews actually getting saved and accepting the Messiah. Let's read it. Uh, It starts in verse 16 and then it kind of jumps up to verse Uh, 26, the house of Israel was living on their own land. They defiled it with their behavior. So I poured out my anger on them. I scattered them among the nations. It's not for your sake that I'm about to act, O house of Israel, but for my sake and my holy reputation. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you back to the land. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will take the initiative and you will obey my statutes and carefully obey my commandments. Then you will live in the land I gave your fathers. 
It's not for your sake I act, so be ashamed and embarrassed by your present behavior. Ezekiel goes on then to tell us when this new heart and spirit time happens. Ask if these things have happened yet. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. In the day I cleanse you from all your sins, some certain things are going to happen. People will say the deserts of the Middle East have become like the gardens of Eden. Bodies of dead Israelites from all history will raise up from the ground and be alive. Dry bones will have flesh put on them and muscles and they'll be alive. David will sit on the throne he was promised and rule over them. Peace will be with everyone and God will be with them forever as a nation. Any of those things happened yet? I don't think so. I think it's pretty clear that this time when the Jewish people have clean and new hearts is the time mentioned in the book of Revelation called the Millennial Kingdom. We believe here at GAC that in the future there will be a literal earthly kingdom with Jesus sitting on a literal earthly throne uh, for a literal thousand years in a land that was promised to Abraham. When Mary's told she's to have Jesus, God comforts her and says, Jesus is the one who the Lord God will give the throne of his father David to reign over his people and whose kingdom will have no end. The rest of the New Testament tells us the hope that the Christian has, that Jesus will return for the Christian and be with them forever. The hope of the Jewish person in the Old Testament, in Nehemiah, and at any time, even now, is that the Messiah will return and gather them from all ends of the earth to the land uh, where Messiah will rule on David's throne. During the Millennial Kingdom, we see both those things happen. Jesus rules over and blesses the nation of Israel in the land, and the Christian is present to enjoy it as well. So I hope I've shown that the time frame that God promised to Abraham was huge and long, and it still remains, in a large part, unfulfilled. Uh, so I'm not sure if I answered the question totally yet, so I just kind of want to say it again differently and make sure I drive it home. All right. So God's plan for the world was mysterious. It was hidden. He's big. His plans are from everlasting to everlasting, like I said at the beginning. When God promised Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through him, the book of Galatians tells us he was mysteriously talking about Jesus offering salvation to every tongue tribe nation. Similarly, when God said the nation was going to inherit the land and be blessed in it, could he not be doing the same thing? I've tried to show today that God was mysteriously looking forward to the time of the millennial kingdom. Hidden in the promise of blessing in the land was the whole time of law, the conditions of the law, the failure of the law, the curses of the law, the scattering of the nation to even now, and the need for a savior who could provide a new cleansed heart and a Holy Spirit so that they could obey with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, and enjoy the blessings of the land. Isn't that wild? I love it. It blows my mind to see how very big God's plan is. I think I can show you why God did this too. Uh, go to Isaiah 43.10. Uh, here he uses, he says that he uses the nation of Israel as his witness to the rest of the world to prove he's God. Isaiah 43.9 is kind of the buffer here. God says, I'm the God who can tell the future and make the future happen. Can you? Other gods? All nations gather together. The peoples assemble. Who among them announced this? 
this unknown thing that's going to happen. Who predicted earlier events for us? Let them produce their witnesses to testify that they were right. Let them listen and affirm it's true. I think God's kind of being sarcastic here to the supposed gods. He says, prove you can predict the future like me. Bring your people as witnesses to the courtroom of the universe. Let them testify and give proof how they've done it like I can do it. No witnesses will show up. Yet God goes on in verse 10 and says this about Israel. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, so that you can consider and believe in me and understand that I'm he. God says here, only he has God-like ability of predicting the future. No other false god has that ability. Other nations can say they have gods that can tell the future or do things in the future, but where's their proof? When the time comes to bring evidence, they don't have any. How can they be believed? They can't. But he says this about Israel in Isaiah's day, and we could read it the same way today, and God, I think, could read it the same way in the millennial kingdom, back looking over the whole of history. Israel are the ones who were called here today, whose purpose it is to exist, to be my witnesses. Israelites are the star witnesses for God in the courtroom of the whole universe for all time. Every single thing that he's done with them witness to the fact and testify to the fact that he's God. And in case the evidence of past history isn't enough for the people in Isaiah's day, uh, God goes on to predict a new thing. Isaiah 43:14 starts uh, a little passage that ends with a really cool thing. It goes on to say, uh, Israel was wicked. I made myself clear to them about their behavior in the land, and I'm predicting that Babylon will come and make them captives for their wickedness. But I will deliver my people again in the future. And the name of the individual is Cyrus. Before God's people were even taken into captivity in Babylon, God predicted the king of the next world power, Persia, by name, Cyrus. And Cyrus wrote an edict that stated that the Israelites could leave captivity and return to Judah and Jerusalem. When the books of Ezra and Nehemiah start, they used to be one book until the Middle Ages. Not sure why we separated them, but we did. Uh, when the books start, the peoples have been slaved in Babylon for about 70 years. Persia is taking over, and it's been about 150 years since Isaiah penned his book. The book of Ezra opens with these words. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the Lord's message, the Lord stirred the mind of King Cyrus of Persia. He passed a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom, announcing in a written edict the following. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's instructed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Anyone from his people among you, may his God be with him, may go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the temple of the Lord. And anyone who survives with any of the places where he's a resident foreigner, those people have to bring silver and gold and equipment and animals along with voluntary offerings to help uh, the temple of the God who is in Jerusalem. How about that? For evidence and testimony of the God of Israel. The God of Israel can predict the future, stir the minds of kings to do his bidding, and even pay for and make them build the temple. All right. The existence of the nation and Cyrus 
and their presence in the land at all at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah are proofs of how godly God is. What are some more ways that the nation were witnesses for all time? Can the other gods of other nations produce such witnesses? No. So Israel is the witness of the one true and powerful God who can do these things. Uh, They were told to be witnesses before they entered the land. They were told to obey and be a particular way so that they'd be a testimony in front of all the other nations in the world and that if they obeyed, God would really, really, really bless them. And that really, really, really blessing that they would have would be the envy of everybody else. And so other people would say, I want to be like that. And under King David and Solomon, we see people actually coming and just giving because you guys are awesome and fearing their army because God is with them. But they also become a proof and a witness and a testimony of other things. They become a testimony of God's hate uh, and punishment for sin. They also are a proof and a witness and a hate of his love for redemption. I mean, he, he doesn't just write them off and scatter them to the nations and obliterate them. He brings them back from the farthest reaches of the whole world. It's the same God for you and I. Uh, they were also a proof and a witness and a testimony of the need of the world for a Savior and a need for a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit to please God. So it's one thing to say that you're God. It's another thing entirely to show it through the whole existence of an entire nation throughout the whole course of human history. So, my goodness, what a witness. I mean, that's that's huge. Uh, So what does this witness business mean to us and to our study of Nehemiah and to Nehemiah's people? Well, just like they were called to be witnesses to God, so are we. We're supposed to have a testimony among the world of what it's like to be the people of God. They'd been away a long time because of sin. They had an identity crisis. The book shows us we're God's people too, and that like them, he's not done with us if we've fallen away. He will restore us. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. They sought him again, and they found the joy of obedience, and they recommitted their lives to God. So whether we're listening today as like a Nehemiah who's leading the people to do the right things or whether we're somebody who's you know, really screwed up and needs to rebuild their testimony, I think Nehemiah is going to be really, really beneficial <coughs> to us. So that's what I have to say today. I think I'll close in prayer. Right. Heavenly Father, you are so big. I hope that this really just resonates in our hearts to have us have more faith in who you are. You have planned things for such a long time. You gave Abraham a promise that he didn't quite understand, but then you gave his people very clear direction on on how to be. And you showed it to be very, very useful. So I pray that we would read your word, see the things that you tell us to do, and that we would do them in faith even if we don't understand them. But God, largely we do understand them. Help us to not 
be wicked. Thank you so much for hearing us. Please bless the study of Nehemiah. Amen.